This is Cinema Degeneration. I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. I, I just can't take no pleasure in killing. Just some things you gotta do. We all go a little mad sometimes. You wanna know what happens to an eyeball when it gets punctured? You just can't let them go? Go! Hi, I'm Jackie. Wanna play? <laughs> Please, God. This is God. The dead will walk here. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Your suffering will be legendary even in hell. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! They all they're coming to get you, Barbara. Boy, Our introductory show tonight features our Grindhouse Pizzeria, which is dedicated to all things Grindhouse and exploitation. Whether it's extra cheesy or loaded with meat. You'll always get a belly full of hot, nasty goodness. Come on in, pull up a chair and grab you a slice. Everybody be cool. You be cool. Somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Low profile. You understand the meaning of the words profile? America's most dangerous criminals have taken hostages. What is this? It's called a punch. I'm going to ask you one question, and all I want is a yes or no answer. Do you want to live through this? Yes. Okay, ramblers, let's get rambling. One night is all that stands between them and freedom. This is my kind of place. But it's going to be one hell of a night. folks welcome once again to cinema degenerations grindhouse pizzeria where we celebrate everything and anything grindhouse and exploitation uh this week we actually have a little change in the lineup our usual host is uh one tom commissar but uh he, he's uh not joining us for, for this evening this evening actually or should say this afternoon early afternoon we have the one and the only tony walters of rad entertainment how you doing tony I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we've uh, we first met. I got I got to tell a little bit of a story about how we first met, and uh, we first met on the set of Blood Moon River uh, for H M and M Films, 
And Tony didn't know who I was. I had never met Tony before. And he came in and uh, apparently, at least the way I heard the story, so you tell me if I if I get this wrong, you thought I was just a real toothless redneck that they hired until I had a scene where I had to pull out a, a buck knife or a, a switchblade. <laughs> yeah, you, uh, I, I, I'd worked with you, I mean, it was, you know, most of the day. And I, I mean, you sold it pretty hard to me. I really thought you were, yeah, you were just this... You know, redneck guy they found to just be in the movie because, you know, in this in this uh, industry of the indie world, sometimes, you know, you have your friends come in and help out. So I thought maybe you were just a, a friend. And, you know, I didn't know if you'd been involved in many movies or productions or anything until, uh, yeah, we had a like a, a folding knife that you had to uh, flip open and cut cut a rope and then shut it. And you couldn't figure out how to shut the knife. And I was like, here, um, I took it and handed like shut it and handed it back to you. And I thought to myself. <laughs> Oh, you're just an actor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just like I don't know how to close the knife. <laughs> hey, uh, they can be tr- they can be tricky. Everybody makes them differently. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was looking at it. and I'm like, where's the release bu- button at? I'm like, I can't find it. Like, I've I've had knives like that before. I'm like, that one was just, yeah, eluded me. But I remember hearing that story <clears throat> uh, from one Daniel Murphy. That and I didn't hear that until like, oh god, a year later probably about right. a year after. Uh, and I think that was probably about when we were at uh, the state theater premiering it. And I was just like, well, so maybe I got this acting thing down. And like, apparently I'm like, I convinced this guy and, and until I realized, uh, revealed that I was you know, no good with my uh, cutlery skills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For being a chef, you know, you think you'd be better with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We don't usually have folding knives, though. You know, we usually have the big butcher, you know, like Michael Myers specials. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Oh, uh, so um, we've already touched base on where we, we met and how we met. Like, want to give the people a little bit of a taste of what it is that you do and, you know, and how you do it. Uh, yeah, I'm the founder of a production company called Rad Entertainment. And we have been kind of, you know, into the the horror community here for a little while. And, and uh, uh, we started out as a YouTube channel, just uh, kind of doing what you're doing here, uh, kind of, you know, talking about movies. And then... We added some video game stuff to it. We added some vlogging. We did a lot of experimental stuff until we kind of landed on independent film. And then the YouTube channel itself has started to, you know, we, we do things on it every once in a great while. But but we've really you know decided to to go in the direction of making movies. And we've really en- been enjoying it. Uh, we just, as of recording this, just hit 100% on our Indiegogo for our upcoming film, Idol Girl which is a uh, it's a film by Rebecca Erb, who is the CEO for Rad Entertainment. She's writing it and has directed it, or is going to be directing it uh, here in the next few weeks we start production. So it's a Christmas crime movie with a horror twist. So we're, we're, we're branching out a little bit from the horror world that we've, we've been involved in, and, uh, but still keeping, there's enough of a horror twist to this that I think that our, our fan basis that we've built up is still gonna very much appreciate. I've been uh, following it ever since you guys uh, started talking about it online and contributed. So hey, I'm happy to see that you uh, reached your goal and hopefully you can hit a couple of stretch goals. Uh, I did watch the, the one chip challenge from the other night that looked painful. I thought I had it with all that hot sauce that we tried with the uh, uh, what was it called? Truth or dabs. And right. uh, And it's not the kind of dabs you're probably thinking of, folks. These are just dabs <laughs> of intensely varying degrees of hot sauce 
And it's basically like a truth or dare game that we played after uh, a Midwest horror fest. And yeah, my, my stomach took a day or two to recover from that. But again, I digress. Congratulations on uh, meeting your goal and hopefully you meet a couple of stretch goals. Yeah, we're 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 looking to push this thing as far as we can go. We have one week left as of recording this for it. I don't know when you plan on airing this episode, I guess, but um Well, let's get into it like since we're talking about your, your movie Idol Girl and you know how it kind of I don't know if you want to say crosses genres, so to speak, uh, that brings us to our movie today. We're bringing probably the, the newest movie. Almost everything we've done thus far on uh, Grindhouse Pizzeria has been from the late 70s to early 80s, because let's face it, that was a high time of uh, Grindhouse and exploitation, especially the 42nd Street theaters, you know, showing stuff and drive-ins were the norm, although drive-ins are making a comeback. That brings us to our movie today, which is 1996's From Dust Till Dawn, which to me, I don't know if you'll agree with me on this, Tony. I think it's the grandest uh, grindhouse exploitation film that came out of the 90s because there weren't many. Uh, I would have to completely agree. Uh, From Dust Till Dawn has always had a like a like a soft spot in my heart. It's it's always been in my top five favorite movies of all time, despite, you know, I mean, it's just despite it being, you know, what it is, which is this grindhouse movie, I've always loved it because I my, I don't know if you know this about me, but my favorite genre of film is crime. Uh, I do know this, yes. So so this movie has, like, kind of the two worlds that I, I, I exist in and kind of similar to what we were just talking about with Idol Girl uh, being, like, a Christmas crime movie that has this horror uh, twist to it. That's, exa- that's what this is. I mean, not Christmas, but this is a, a full-on crime movie uh, with a really crazy horror twist. <laughs> yes, and, and you don't have to worry. We do do spoilers here, so you know if you give away the ending of a movie uh, <laughs> at the right. beginning of the show, you know. Yeah, it's getting, a. Ne- it came out you, in 1996. You should have seen it by now. <laughs> yes, and if you haven't, it, it, you know, even if it's something that you've missed, you're going to know by just looking at the cover or looking at a trailer that you know the the big twist is you know vampires but i remember like in the 90s you know all you had to go off was was a little bit on the internet and you know trailers that was basically the two two big things nobody was really vlogging back in 96 you know at least not to the extent that people are today you know so everything does didn't get ruined like it was but i had it ruined for me because i am also big my uh, my favorite Two genres are horror and crime thrillers as well. Uh, I love Scorsese. I love uh, Prince of Four Coppola films. But, you know, Reservoir Dogs was a big film for me. And I remember seeing this one from Dust Till Dawn, you know, again, written by Quentin, Quentin Tarantino, both written by Quentin. And then this one actually uh, pretty much starring Quentin for a bit of the film, the first half. <laughs> but uh, I knew the story from reading in Fangoria about this movie getting made almost a year, two years before it came out, uh, that Quentin had had the script, but he was, you know, an inexperienced director at the time, so he wasn't given the chance to direct it. He, you know, the script kind of fell into a limbo. You know, it was written as payment to KMB effects for uh, the effects work that that KMB effects did on Reservoir Dogs, and then just happened to, you know, fall into the hands of Robert Rodriguez, who was kind of part of that whole group, that whole Miramax group that came up in the 90s of, you know, Quentin, uh, Kevin Smith, Robert Rodriguez, and more. So the fact that it kind of like left his hands and then kind of sort of fell back into his lap at the same time, I always found, you know, interesting. And I read the script 
good couple of years before I ever, I was a script hound. I would find scripts and buy them off of eBay in the nineties, which was the only way to you know read them back then. And I remember I got to see this movie and it didn't, it does not disappoint. So, uh, but what, how did, how did you first see it? How did it first come into your hands? Um, I mean, I saw it, you know, you're, you're a little bit older than I am. Uh, right. You got, you got like, yeah. you got like 10 years on me. I'm, so, I'm 44, sir. So I got at least a decade on you. Yeah. You got 12 years on me. So I know, I'm old fart. <laughs> for me, I, I, I saw this movie, uh, I was I was really young, and I mean it wouldn't surprise me if I was I mean probably around ten years old when I saw this movie, and I I saw it because my aunt was into George Clooney I think was pretty much what it was, uh, so we watched it, and I don't know that she knew exactly what she was getting herself into when we watched it, uh, but um, but she ended up liking it a lot. She also liked horror movies too. But uh, you know, this is this movie is a bit grander and a bit more off the wall, I think, than you know your general public, uh, you know, is is going to be after. But uh, I just fell in love with it immediately. I loved every aspect of this film, and it's one of the movies I think that you know drove me to do what I'm doing and and become a filmmaker because it has a lot of elements that I enjoy from a lot of different genres where you have like this crime element that's uh, between these two brothers that have a really interesting dynamic and you get to really understand like the dynamic between the two of them, who they are and fall in love with the family uh, that they take hostage as well, who is also going through a lot of, you know, uh, drama in their lives. And then, you know, take, take these two, two families uh, you know, on opposite sides of, the, of this coin and smash them together and then throw vampires into the mix after you fall in <laughs> love with them. Uh, this this movie, I don't know. I don't know why. Um, at the time, I, I, I mean, I think this might have been my introduction to Quentin Tarantino. I don't know that I had actually seen Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction uh, before seeing this. Because I didn't see those movies until I was in high school. See, I saw Reservoir Dogs first. Uh... I, I saw a trailer for it at the beginning of another film and was just captivated by the music, by the way it was shot, and just from the trailer alone. And that's back when trailers were actually trailers, you know? Right. Uh, you know, not just little blips, but, man, it, it really told a story, and I was just like, I have to see this movie. And I couldn't convince anybody I knew to go see it, so I took my grandmother at the time to go see <laughs> Reservoir Dogs. Because it was like, it's, it looks like a crime caper, you know, like Humphrey Bogart, James Candy type stuff. And my grandmother liked it, but I remember her saying the, uh, at the time, <laughs> she's like, I just don't understand why they got to talk so dirty. Why do they got to curse so much? I'm like, well, <laughs> I'm like, it's entertaining. But, you know, that was my introduction to Quentin. But, you know, it, it went from there to Pulp Fiction to even True Romance and Natural Born Killers all around that time of the, you know, mid to late 90s when... Quentin was just breaking out into the scene. Uh, but, you know, the, when I first heard of this, you know, they had talked that like Robert Englund was going to be in it and uh, Linnea Quigley was going to be in it and a bunch of other people. Then that's when it kind of disappeared for a couple of years, made the rounds coming back. And, you know, now it's got, you know, George Clooney, who at that time was riding high on uh, ER, I think at the time. So right. This is kinda, his first movie. Like this is his, yeah. his, his first movie. Like before that. Yeah. He was just on ER. Yeah, I mean, like, he had been in movies before, but he never had a starring role, I don't think. I think, like, the most he had done was something like Return to Horror High and Attack of the Killer Tomatoes Part 2. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. 
so you know this is his first kind of really big time legit film you know and the cast let's before we get into the story and you know what way it starts out it's got an amazing cast when you, you think about it you got george clooney and quentin who play very well off each other as seth and richard gecko i you know, I'm I'm a fan of Quentin, the director and the writer, not so much the actor, but he plays the the role of Richard Gecko so well. He's so creepy and just uh, there's just something in his eyes. Maybe that's something that Quentin can tap into easily. Yeah, he's a, he's a creepy dude uh, in this movie. There, there's an element to him that is unnerving throughout the whole thing. I mean, you fall in love with with uh, George Clooney's character, you know, like with Seth Gecko. Like you fall in love with him pretty easily because he's I mean, he's he's George Clooney. Like you look into those eyes and he, he's he's got a, an element to him that's trustworthy. But by putting that big tattoo on him and everything, I mean, they gave him that edge to make him. Yeah, he's a scary guy, but ultimately he's got morals. Uh, yeah. Tarantino's can, morals are flexible. You can guarantee yourself that, like, he's a man of his words. He tells everybody, like, this is the deal. I will shoot you in the face if you don't do what I say. Do what I say, and as I say it, and you will get out of this alive. And I think he truly means his word. There's a point in the movie, well, we'll get to it later, but, you know, he, he says, I don't kill people that I don't absolutely have to. I'm just right. a professional fucking thief. And uh, but let's get into the, the, the opening of this film. <clears throat> it opens up. It looks it's the desert. It's just a little roadside uh, bar and a roadside bar, roadside liquor store and gas station. And we get the first person that walks into frame when he pulls up Michael fucking Parks. And if you don't know who Michael Parks is, then I suggest you pause this and go educate yourself, folks, because he is. He is just the man. I could name a hundred films that he's been in, but we don't have that much time. But I mean, he's and, and the funny thing is, he's he plays a Texas Ranger named Earl McGraw, and he's got this whole monologue, and it's not appropriate because he makes fun of special needs people and whatnot. He makes fun of it just about everybody in this speech, but it's classic Quentin dialogue. It tells you not just a story, but it tells you exactly who you're talking to. And you feel like after a minute and a half, you know who Earl McGraw is. You know everything about him from top to bottom. And the interesting part is, is that he, you know, he ends up dying. You know, several minutes later into the movie, you know, you know, he he's gone. He gets his one scene and he's gone. But the character of Earl McGraw, you know, has lived on in what uh, five other movies because he was in Kill Bill. Uh, right. It was in. Uh, 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 not Django, God, that wasn't it. It wasn't Django, but he well, Michael Parks was in Django, but it was in uh, Planet Terror, you know. And I know there was a couple others I'm not thinking of right now, Death Proof, and and a few others. But like for a character that's so iconic to be introduced and killed five minutes later, but still had several movies that come later. It was just like, was are these supposed to be sequels or prequels? Or what timeline in this universe <laughs> do they? I don't think I don't think even Quentin could probably tell you the timeline in which they exist. No, I think that yeah, I think it's more it's more of an Easter egg than anything. It's just he likes to stick him in in different spots because I mean he's an incredible actor and is I don't know he 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 sells the tone of the movie right off the get go. I feel like just like right off the bat, this opening scene just spews Quentin Tarantino all over it. You and that, you know, it makes me question, you know, right. Like how much Tar did Tarantino direct versus how much did Robert Rodriguez direct? And I think that their styles are similar anyway, I guess. But um, like it's a perfect 
pairing and right off the get-go you as soon as he walks away and he, he walks to the restroom and then we here we come with our with our characters you know we've right. got you got george Clooney. been there the, like been there the entire time we just don't know it yeah so so you have this this tension between you know the store clerk and uh and the sheriff here that is you know the store clerk i don't know he, he's selling it pretty good uh but but you get a vibe right off the bat that maybe there's something something afoot, <laughs> and then as soon as uh, as soon as the you sheriff do walks it as away, well as can be expected of anybody, I think, who essentially has a you know a gun to their head. Oh, for sure. Uh, but when you when you get your you know you get your first look at Robert or Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> you first get your first look at George Clooney <laughs> uh, walking into the scene, you know, with holding this woman uh, at gunpoint with this gun pointed, you know, right at the store clerk here. Uh, and so it's it's a good way to introduce you know your 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 pretty boy from ER that that America loves right off the bat as your villain, right? And I thought that was so perfect for him to to do that because you know anybody could have went with the 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 Sandra Bullock rom com kind of thing you know which would have been you know the kind of thing to do in the nineties. No, what does he do? He does you know this bloody gory. Like where he's tattooed up, he's threatening people, he's beating people up and, you know, cursing like a drunken sailor. And he's just the most nefarious character you could probably imagine. But at the same time, you know, there's it's George Clooney, you know, so there's like you said, there's something in those eyes, you know, he's got a charisma about him. But, you know, he, he when he comes out after Earl McGraw goes back into, you know, to use the restroom. And he has that moment. He's like, you know, do you want me to kill everybody? Do you want me to turn this place into Benny's world of blood? Because I then the, I had to make a note. Like he makes a wild bunch reference. He's like, because I will turn this place into the wild bunch. And anybody seen the wild bunch knows that everybody dies. <laughs> you know, there's blood. They're screaming. They're killing, and everybody dies. So you know, that's exactly pretty much what happens. And we get the coolest line. Uh, I, there's so many good one-liners in here, but you know. How many people that today go, hey, everybody be cool, you be cool, and even know what movie it came from? Um, is it be cool? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was not be <laughs> No, that was that was like that was like Tarantino light, that movie. Oh gosh. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, anyways. But you know uh, he, he, but Tarantino uses the words be cool, I think. I mean I mean there there's there's quite a few like uh, in Pulp Fiction, I think "be cool" is said. I don't know. I want to count it sometime. It's a lot in the yes. uh, in the diner I mean, I scene. Really, yeah, I think really the only time, only movie he doesn't say "be cool" is maybe the Hateful Eight. <laughs> Am I? <laughs> and I, I, I could go for a rewatch on that one. <laughs> I could too, because you know, with the that four chapter thing they released on uh, Netflix. The but anyways, we what do we get? He, he threatens him. He tells him, "Listen, you're going to be cool." And that's when Richie steps in. Quentin is obviously the more psychologically unhinged of the two, and he's just kind of whispering in his brother's ear. And he's like, "You know, were you giving the pig signals? Did you mouth the words help us? You know, or were you fidgeting?" And you know, he's like, "No, I wasn't." He's like, "All right, you know, you be cool." When they hear, they hear the toilet flush, they just go back to the back of the store like they're looking at the wine rack. Earl McGraw comes out, has a little bit of banter with old Pete, and what happens? Quentin just walks up right behind him, blows his brains out, his face, like one shot down, and everything now has completely changed. Yeah, and you all and 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 right off the bat, you know, he's 
George Clooney's character is, you know, yelling at Tarantino's. Uh, and now you've got Tarantino explaining that why he shot him, which is that the, the store clerk signaled to him. Which he didn't. <laughs> which he didn't. And no. so immediately, immediately you get the sense of who Tarantino's character is now. And, and that he's this, he's a wild card. He, he's not completely right in his head. And, and you get all of that right in this, this bit of dialogue. You get that you can't trust this guy. Like George Clooney's character, maybe he's a bad guy. Yeah. But I think that ultimately, like what you said, he, when he gives you his word, he means it. Right. And with like Quentin's character with Richie, that's the difference between him and Seth. Richie, you know, his word means absolutely nothing, you know, because his, <laughs> you don't know what's going on in his mind because we do get that one glimpse of life through uh, Richie's eyes at one point, point, and it's just, uh, yeah, it's it's not a cool place to live. But then, okay, we get, I mean, we get the obligatory where everything turns into the wild bunch, you know, because Richie pulls out his gun and just, boom, shoots uh the the barkeep you know or, or pete pete bottoms was the character's name played by the amazing john hawks uh, john hawks was i mean everybody in this movie is somebody cool i mean he was in uh deadwood and a bunch of other stuff but uh, he's a great character actor but he goes down while he's behind the counter you know w- wallowing in a puddle of blood because they shot him in the shoulder you know he uh gets into a, a safe starts loading up a, a pistol that he pulls out of it so what's he do he comes up over the top shoots Richie in the hand. So Quentin goes down, shot in the hand. There's a big shootout. And they, I love the, how Richie and Seth work together. Like, cause they're not, again, not good guys, but it's like, Hey, you shoot out the bottles behind them. Meanwhile, I'm soaking them out like a little, almost a little Molotov cocktail and how they, you know, they, they work as a plan to set everything on fire behind them and engulf poor old Pete in a, a blazing fireball, which comes back to bite him in the ass because then he comes up over the counter, you know what I mean? Completely on fire, still shooting. That was like blew right. my mind. The the great thing about the dynamic there is that, yeah, despite the fact that, you know, maybe Richie's a wild card, uh, they are brothers. And so you, when they, in that scene, you, you get the sense of, all right, they might be, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, odd couple here, but they are brothers and they do trust each other to a degree. Richie, I think trusts you know, trusts uh, Seth completely 100%, but uh, you know, maybe not so much the other way around, but they, they do work well together as a team. And that's why they were able to, you know, be this, this, you know, duo here. This is Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say like Bonnie and Clyde meets Batman and Robin, you know, with, uh, but, but then, you know, we get from there, they kill Pete, Pete, Pulls into the popcorn rack, and I, I think it's funny as he's lying there dying, the popcorn's popping. So the disturbed person in me just wants to giggle every time the popcorn starts popping. And but you know the one good thing is, is the two girls that they were holding hostage they got away. But then they're having their little argument as they're leaving. You know, I'm like do you understand the meaning of the words low profile as the building is exploding in in the background behind them. This a little pop here, a little pop there, and then the roof flies off. Low profile. You know the meaning of the words low profile? That still gets to me every time. <laughs> and, and then it starts, like, and then for the next, like, three minutes, the, the title sequence, which is completely grindhouse, the way they do the titles and the swelling, you know, uh, like, ZZ Top music that comes over the, over the soundtrack. It looks like a Mad Max film, because we're just getting the shot of this old Cougar XR7 
you know, hightailing it down the highway, hot rodding it. And it looks like, you know, almost like the interceptor from Road Warrior just traveling down this lonely stretch of highway. And, you know, the the there's I, I don't know what what you thought of this. It still makes me laugh when Quentin holds up his hand. He's got this dime sized hole in the middle of it, which would have rendered at least two of those finger, fingers completely useless. Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and he just, you know, takes out a roll of duct tape and just duct tapes his hand. And my, my thought back in the day is like, that's so badass. And now I look at him like, that's not hygienic. No, at, definitely at not all. sanitary. That thing is you definitely know, getting infected. Yes, yeah, getting infected. You're, you're going to lose probably half your hand, if not your half your arm. By the time you know they get to where they're going in Mexico, I'm I'm, I'm sure wherever they're going, the, the type of guys they are, they're not going to be getting top notch doctors. He's gonna he's gonna lose that hand. If he had made it through the movie, he'd have lost the hand. But but the, that's not even the wildest thing about and this is just the credit sequence folks we're hardly into the movie there's a scene where a part where the camera flows to the back end of the car and like the rear quarter panel panel just dissolves away and you see that this entire time even while they were having the shootout at the liquor store they got a hostage a female bank teller hostage tied up in the back of the car this the thing about this movie it gets you into a a semi-comfortable place as comfortable as you can be in these kind of situations and then it just turns things over on its ear Uh, a good a good thing about action movies uh and like how to how to write action and how to how to direct the good action is it's every 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 action has a reaction and then you have to you know bounce off that so so it's it's you know set it up Subvert, subvert. Uh, you know your your. Uh, what's we're looking for? Subvert your uh, attention. Attention, or maybe not attention, but uh, <laughs> uh, but you uh, you know you set it up, and then you 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 know action reaction action reaction. So we you get to a place, you're like, hey, okay, now we're think you know buildings exploded, get away. Things have chilled down. It's cool. Pan to the back. Oh no, now we've got somebody in the trunk. So it's like it's like. Get you in a comfortable spot, build some tension. Get you a comfortable spot, build some tension. And that is the the ping pong that is this movie throughout the whole movie. Yeah, and it plays beautifully. And especially like the ne- going into the next scene where we get our, our next family, you know, we have our um, crime family here of the Gecko brothers. And, you know, you get the idea. And something we didn't mention in the dialogue with Earl McGraw is that they had had a, there was a bank robbery you know, they killed civilians, they killed uh, police officers and a couple of rangers. So these people, you know, are nefarious types. They're not just, you know, they didn't just like knock over a Burger King, you know, <laughs> they're serious individuals. So the next family we get into is uh, the Fullers, you know, which is, you know, you got Jacob, the father played by Car- Harvey Keitel and Harvey Keitel got we could devote an entire season of shows to the movies that this guy has done from taxi driver uh, to even recently with the Irishman, the guy's been in everything and anything. He, uh, but he plays a kind of a different role in this. The The fact of this broken preacher whose wife has died and he's lost his, you know, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Lost his faith, you know, while trying to hold on to some semblance of family out with his uh, son, and his uh, daughter, and his daughter's played by uh, Juliette Lewis, who was also in National Born Killers and 
you know, God, she's been in a million movies. But the son's name, I didn't write down that played Scott Fuller. I don't know that he ever directed, or not directed, sorry, that he ever acted in anything else. I and mean, he might have been in, in a couple of, you know, a handful of things, but he did not go on to have much of a career. Uh, which uh, is yeah, probably I for mean, the better. He's the weakest link of the movie, to be quite honest. Right. It's, yeah, he was in, I mean, just looking at his IMDb, he's in some t- television stuff. Uh, but he doesn't have a photo on IMDb, and uh, yeah, he he from Dust Till Dawn was the only movie that he was in. No, uh, I did see now that I look at that he was in the Faculty, the TV show, which right uh, there was a Faculty TV show. <laughs> Neither did I. <laughs> but you get the, the idea. Uh, the daughter, Juliette Lewis's Kate, uh, you know, has a discussion with her father's like, you know, do you still believe in God? You know, and, and, and it's a very poignant uh, conversation. You know, he he again, in a matter of seconds, you fully realize who you're dealing with, with Jacob Fuller, that he's, you know, a guy who used to be a, a minister. He lost his uh, faith, you know, like he still believes in God. But does he love him? No. And he says that straight up. And the, says I don't you know I don't love him anymore. I think the dialogue between him and the daughter is really good because at one point she kind of pokes the sleep and bear and she's like you're just going to wake up one morning and say fuck him and Harvey gives her the the look that only Harvey can give, you know, that steely-eyed glare. <laughs> and uh you know he's like I didn't say fuck him. And like in a nice way he's like saying watch your language little girl. <laughs> right. He uh like this is this is this is you know another part where you where you see you know tarantino all over it like harvey keitel just coming off of you know he just was reservoir dogs and then pulp fiction uh and now you know being the lead in this film and playing a completely different character than what he's played in the in the last two tarantino projects he was involved in so this one brings a lot of heart and and you know in reservoir dogs i think his character had a lot of heart too but this is this is a you know this guy is nonviolent and and that is not what he's been in the last two movies of Tarantino's. He's been yeah. a, <laughs> so so th- he's he's nonviolent. He's on a path of uh, you know trying to find himself, and uh, I think that we set up this family dynamic pretty strong right off the right off the get go. I think that all these characters, Scott the son, definitely yeah, being the weakest link uh, as far as like who you become attached to. Uh, right. This movie, I had a huge crush on Julia Lewis uh, from this movie <laughs> as a young child. Uh, oh, when I was young, I, between this and uh, Natural Born Killers, yeah, she was a high on my crush list. Yes. But then again, speaking of crush list, uh, there's another a- actress in this movie that this. Oh, we'll get to that part later. <laughs> this dance I think scene. I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But uh, one little bit of tidbit of information, I don't know if you knew this, that producer Lawrence Bender is actually in this scene, the producer of like Reservoir Dogs from Dust Till Dawn and Pulp Fiction. He's just a lonely guy, like he did a sit-in scene, he's just a lonely guy sitting in the background drinking coffee. This little tidbit for nice. all y'all. A little, little Easter egg action. <laughs> yeah, a little Easter egg, because I, I never knew that before, and I looked it up after I watched it again last night. I looked, and like, I paused it in the background, I'm like... I know that motherfucker. I know him. I know I know him. Then I'm like, oh, shit, he's the guy behind the scenes and all this. The next scene again, uh, <laughs> it's 
it's just so simple. It's just, you know, a close-up of a, of a ringer, you know, the, the, the bell, you know, on the counter at a sleazy hotel. And he and Seth is just pounding this bell, hitting it over and over again. And when that cantankerous old guy comes out, I mean, he's, only, again, only in one scene. I don't remember the old fella's name uh, that played the old-timey uh, motel owner. Uh, but he just comes out, and he's like, what the hell do you want? And he's like, what? fuck you think I want you mean old bastard I want a goddamn room <laughs> just little one-liners like that I I, I love them I, I this just the little tidbits of this of that and it means nothing to the story but it's just it's great it's great dialogue you know and you come to expect that with the Tarantino or Rodriguez movie for that matter yeah, I mean that's what the I mean that's that's where you know the writing comes through, and same with Natural Born Killers. You know, when you have Tarantino writing it, you what he his the thing that he's you know best known for, and what you know shines through is he takes horrible people and humanizes them. Uh, he, you know, these are the conversations that everybody has in their life. You know, I mean, you, you everybody's a bullshitter when you're on your day job and you're working. What do you do most of the time? You just bullshitting with whoever it is. That yeah. You're right. Yeah. You're sitting along with. So by taking like these, you know, hardcore criminals and giving them dialogue that is kind of everyday, uh, everyday dialogue, it, it humanizes them. It makes you be able to actually relate to them. Yes, very much so. And all I got to say is this this damn do drop motel. This is not a place I would ever want to stay in. I would never want to sleep in. I would want to put plastic on everything. But yeah, they- I definitely slept in hotels like that. Not not great. <laughs> yeah, it's not, not fun. It makes me just kind of itchy thinking about it. Yep. But, uh, you know, you get the idea. You and, and getting deeper into the story. Seth and Richie open up. They 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 open up the trunk of the car. They take the hostage out, and you know they have a little bit of dialogue. You get the idea that they they're taking the money that they had gotten from the bank robbery. They're going to meet a crime boss named Carlos, and they're going to El Rey. And El Rey is a fictional town where. You know, it, it goes all the way back to the movie The Getaway, uh, where I think it was first mentioned, uh, Steve McQueen movie. Uh, might might have been the origin of that that town. But uh, it's supposed to be where all the, the nefarious characters, all the, the crooks and the criminals go go to hide out. But they have to buy their way in. They need they have to give Carlos, no matter how much it is that they got, they got to give him 30 percent. And they have a bit of an argument there. And you get a little bit more insight to the family, you know, that Seth is the older brother. He knows better. He also knows that Richie's a hothead and he just kind of puts his foot down and uses a line that I use to this day, this day today. Uh, if I'm done talking to somebody, I will tell them this conversation's over. And, you know, he's he has a, n- another conversation. Seth does. Clooney does. And he's being very. Uh, suave about it. I don't think it's intentional. I think it's just part of who Clooney is. You know, he tells her he's very, you know, soft-spoken, but he puts a gun to their head and he tells her, these are the rules. You know, you you don't question us. You don't try to run. And, you know, you don't ask any questions at all. And if you try to run, I got six little friends here that can all run faster than you can. And he tells her, he's like, you do what I say. And he's like, and I promise you, you will get out of this alive. And I think he even knows that by what he does next, he's like, I got to go. He's got to go make a phone call and get in touch with Carlos. I think he he almost knew or suspected something bad was going to happen because the moment he leaves, I'll let you take this one because the moment he leaves, Quentin goes into full Richie mode. Yeah, and I, I he definitely he has his suspicions. I think that he's I think he's doing what family does, and that is like you know 
I don't know. Uh, if I've got, you know, I've got family and close friends that have, you know, been down some rough paths and sometimes it's hard to, it's hard to see it when you're that close, when you're that, when you're a family, family member, when you, you know, you know that they're, you know, maybe up to something they shouldn't be doing, but you have this hope, this little bit of hope that, you know, Hey, I'm going to, it's pretty much a test almost like I'm going to leave you alone here with this woman. And I know that you have the capability to do something really terrible. Uh, but I see good in you and I hope that when I come back, everything's going to be fine. And I, I think that, you know, I think that's what he's going for. I think it's when he, when he comes back, it's actually sad, you know? Uh, yeah. It, 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 it hits she that, goes into level. full, like, you know, creeper mode. Uh, Immediately. At that point. Yeah. He's like, Hey, you want to come over here and sit on the bed next to me and watch TV? And you're just like, and then it cuts. So you never see any act, any, right any murder, any rape, anything like that. But you know something's good, bad's going to happen. Because, I, I mean, I've seen this movie so many times, I know it like the back of my hand. But it's like, this time I'm watching it, I'm like, no, no. Say no, you don't want to go and sit and like watch TV with this fucking fruitcake. But yeah. when Clooney gets back, when Seth's, uh, when the character of Seth gets back, it is sad because he's like, you know, he comes back, he's got food, you know, which is another nod to Pulp Fiction because he's got a bag of big Kahuna burger. <laughs> right. <laughs> It was like I I think they've they've missed out on not having like a big Kahuna Burger pop up restaurant somewhere. If they haven't, still done it, they need... <laughs> Yeah, but you know he looks down and he's like, oh, I got this extra burger. Where is the hostage? And she's like, oh no, she's she's just in there. And I love how this scene is orchestrated. It's sad because you know Clooney opens the door, the camera is on him. You see a little bit of splash of blood on the wall, but you don't see anything else. You see these quick little flashes of. Post carnage, I guess you probably the best way to describe it. Yeah, I mean, there's like they're they're just like a couple of frames. They're almost like if you blink, you will you literally will miss them. It's not a euphemism. It's it's sad, and it it it's just enough to to understand the amount of violence that happened in that room. Like like it if it had you seen it happen, I don't think it would have you know has had the impact. This this not seeing the actual violence happen and then holding on on Clooney's reaction to what he's seeing, I think sells it harder than if you would have like really shown all the gore or, or shown shown the 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 scene in itself. Like this this is this is a good um, this is a good example of like good editing. I think that this shows how to make a scene impactful and get the message across without having to, you know, show all the violence. And I think that's the, you know, it's a, it's a, I, I it's a key to, to good storytelling, like show, don't tell. Yeah. And, and this, this is, movie shows you a whole lot, you know, in other scenes, but like, this was a moment where it didn't need to, it knew that. And, yeah, you know, this was about the emotion. Or, this is, this is about getting you to connect with the characters. Like we're, they're holding off on the, the violence and the gore into the big, the big finale. Cause they, they, you right. know, they know that's where they're going to, you know, they're selling it all. Well, and I love Clooney's dialogue here. He turns around and he just kind of shakes his head. Like he can't believe what he's seeing. It's like, uh, you know, of mice and men with Lenny, you know, is this, he sees something. And he's like, it, he's like, is this me? Do you think that this is who I am? Is this my fault? And he's like, oh, no, no, it's not your fault, brother. It, it's her fault. And like she became a different person while you were gone. And he just flips out and just manhandles Richie, slams him up against the wall. And he's like, I'm telling you, this is not how it's done. This is not how we do things. He's like, and this is where he has the line that I love so much. He's like, 
I am a professional fucking thief and I don't murder and rape women. I don't kill people that I don't have to. And in three lines of dialogue, three, four lines of dialogue, you fully understand at this point who he is. You know who Richie is. You know, you know, he's just not to be trusted by anybody. And, you know, Clooney knows that. I think he just hopes and prays that, you know, that they can get to El Rey, where's the one place, you know, that's, you know, full of people like Richie. Someplace where he can go and, and, you know, be amongst his own, I guess, is a good way. I feel like he's almost like like Clooney by taking, you know, by Seth taking uh, Richie to El Rey. He's almost putting himself into self-imposed exile. He's like, I don't want to go to this El Rey place, but I have to take you there if you're going to keep surviving in this world. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's that's pretty much, I mean, they're, run, they're on the run because, you know, of what they've just done. But... Like that, like what you just said, George Clooney's character. I mean, Seth is he's wanting to to save his brother almost like get him out of out of the country and with, you know, this bag full of cash and maybe they can go live on a beach somewhere, uh, you know, be in a place where maybe, you know, maybe Richie can can exist (laughs) (laughs) without turmoil. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a it's such a harrowing scene, and it I love, again it's a marvel in editing. It's like it's not showing you really anything, but it's telling you everything. And I I didn't make a note here. There is this almost a throwaway scene right before this where they're watching on the news, where the news reporter uh, is having a conversation about the the bank robbery and you know how Richie broke his broke Seth out of jail. They committed this bank robbery, uh, but the news reporters played by uh, Kelly Preston, uh, who's been in a ton of films. She was in Christine. And then John Saxon, who is, to me, grindhouse gold. Uh, he's a grindhouse legend, I mean, for some of the movies he's been in. But I, I got to say, it, it was a little bit of a sombering kind of uh, scene because both of them are no longer with us. Both Kelly Preston and John Saxon have passed away in 2020. So it was... A little hard to watch that little scene, but it did bring a smile to my face. It was just like, ah, you know, there they are, both together. But anyway, uh, I digress a little bit. <clears throat> now our two families are going to converge. Uh, the two families are going to meet up because Jacob does not want to sleep in the RV anymore. He's not tired of their trip. He wants to sleep in an honest goodness bed. So they stop where the goddamn do drop in, which, you know, that's when they're going to you know, cross paths. They almost run over Clooney in the uh, parking lot. And you you can just see Clooney's eyes eyeing up this RV. He's, he's formulating a plan. He doesn't say anything. He just looks at him, walks back to his room. And that's the last you see of Clooney for a little bit. Next thing, you know, Harvey's sleeping on his bed. Scott's playing the guitar with his earphones on, wearing a Precinct 13 t-shirt, which I thought was a nice little nod to, uh, <laughs> Salt on Precinct 13 by John Carpenter. Even back in the day, I was just like, huh, I see what you did there. But uh, <laughs> then comes the knock on the door that changes everybody's lives forever. And, you know, I have to say, Richie, for being as unhinged as he was, he played it off pretty well as just being the dorky guy. He's like, oh, hey, you know, me and my girl need an ice, need some ice, and we don't have an ice bucket. Can I borrow yours? I'll bring it right back. You know, right. He's almost like Neil Patrick Harris nerdy at this point, <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> yeah, he's he's it's because he's also he's entranced, you know, he's he's yeah. now you know fallen in love. It seems as though you know love at yeah. first sight. 
with some awkward dialogue from oh yeah there's a <laughs> there's a there, there is a shot because queenie comes in he he punches jacob d- down to the bed it, i love the of a lot love the line what is this and it's called a punch but uh you know the we get a glimpse inside richie's mind because then juliet lewis show, shows back up as kate and she's in a bikini she's just got done you know like swimming at the pool i guess and he thinks she wants him to perform um I think the best way to eloquently put about the dialogue because it's great. She wants him to perform oral sex on her. And that's what he hears in his head. He looks at her and she's not even looking at him. She's like staring at Seth, who's got the gun on, on, on her. And so you, you see inside his head why he's a psychopath. He's like he sees things different. He's he's a little little bit of little bit. No, not even a little bit. He's a lot of bits fucking psychotic. Yeah, he's a lot psychotic. And I think that 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 like as uncomfortable as this one line of dialogue is, uh like because when it happens, it's very jarring. But yeah. at the same time, when like as you realize what's happening, that it's just him, you know, a glimpse inside of his mind, then it, you you know, you can also think back to the scene that we just saw and and think like, you know, what in his mind did he think was going on? And and when he says like when he says earlier in the gas station, when he says, you know, like the, the store clerk, you know, he signaled the cop in his mind, he did. Right. You know? And his mind, you know, when he says like the, the, this bank teller woman became a completely different person after, after Seth left, like in his mind, she did. And like, yeah. this is, this is what sells, this is what sells his, his stuff from before. It's like, he's not lying. He believes it. Yeah. He's he, it's his reality. And, you know, in his reality, it's not that he's wrong. It's just what he's seeing. You know, he's a, probably a little bit of schizophrenia in there. They, they, you know, in short, there's a bit of dialogue. Jake, Jacob pushes back. Uh, you know, they take the keys. They're pulling the RV around. And it basically tells them, you know, listen, you know, I'm going to take you and your family hostage. Jacob tries to push back a little bit. He's like, yeah, it's not going to happen. And he's like, okay, well, then I'm just going to shoot your son in the head right here and now. Uh, you know, the, Jacob comes comes to an agreement. So now uh, the geckos have abandoned the Cougar XR7, which I was sad to see that go. Badass car. Uh, <laughs> but they're, they're now like traveling in the, uh, you know, the RV and they're heading towards uh, Mexico. And yeah, something a little more incognito. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a couple of bad guys in a dusty old, you know, 68 Cougar would get probably picked up by the FBI, but a family traveling in the RV would not. And this is where we get where they travel to the uh, the border and we get our first of three different appearances by Cheech Marin. And as three, I must say, and it's not just by Cheech as, you know, one character three different times. No, three completely different characters, three completely different personas, three completely different looks. Yeah, I love that aspect of this movie. Um, and it was, I think, one of those things that... I don't know that I picked up on as a kid so much, uh, but it was definitely one of those things. I mean, I, I, I watch this movie at least once a year, probably. I, 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 it's, as I said, it's one of my favorite movies. And uh, yeah, he plays three completely different characters, completely different looks. Uh, I, and, you know, even, even a monster version of one of the characters, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, so technically 3.5 characters. <laughs> exactly. <you know? laughs> 
But this time he's a hard-nosed uh, border patrol agent who comes on on the RV to check and make sure there ain't nobody on there that's not supposed to be on there because Harvey kind of fucks up and he tells him, oh, it's just me and my son. And then there's a little bit of a kerfuffle, I guess you could say, going on in the restroom. Seth and Richie are, and Kate are all standing in the bathroom and there's an argument between, you know, Seth and Richie and Seth just gets pissed off and pistol whips Richie and knocks him right this right the fuck out. And even mm-hmm. Kate was like, thank you. <laughs> and Cody just does kind of give her the look like, yeah, it's not the first time I've had to knock my brother out, but right. You know, border patrol agent hears the thump. So he comes on board and there's a very awkward scene with Kate's just like sitting on the toilet and he's like, border patrol. And she's like, but he's like, okay, it's open, you know, but she's sitting on the, 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 the toilet doing her business, you know, or, pantomiming that she is she's like you know you want to close the fucking door and he just peeks as he's closing he's a completely skeezy bastard and uh but they they managed to get through the you know with Clooney and and Richie I I don't I don't know how they through the process of uh, uh disbelief they expect you to believe that two of them could fit into a little RV shower stall I've been in one of those yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I was I was just about to say that. Like the fact that three of them fit into that bathroom at all, uh, that's a pretty spacious RV bathroom. Let me tell you, <laughs> never seen one like that before in my life. But you know, Jacob must have had a pretty good nest egg to buy one of those, right? But they get they get across the border, so and they're pretty much you know home safe, and uh, you know not well so much home safe, but they're past you know the getting past the cops, getting past border patrol. They've managed to you know sneak past the FBI, and that's when uh, Seth reveals his plan. You know, and this is after a scene. It's actually before they even get to the border, where Seth picks uh, basically picks through uh, Jacob's wallet, and he's like, "Who's this?" And this is my wife. So it goes through the whole story of how she died. And it's very tragic. You know, she the brakes weren't good on the car. She slid. She she was trapped in the car for six hours where she passed away. So it was not an easy death. And he's really picking and poking the sleeping bear with asking all these questions that he's asking uh, poor Jacob. But they get to know each other, you know, and they come to an agreement. And he's like, hey, he's like, fine. He's like, you know, you didn't like the way my, my brother was looking at your daughter, did you? And he's like, no, I didn't. And he's like. I'll keep you safe. I'll keep him off of her. And, you know, as long as you keep your word, you know, we'll be good. And he's like, well, if he touches her, I'll kill him. He's like, fine. You break your word, I'll kill all fucking three of you. <laughs> and, yeah, again, another exchange of dialogue I love. But then they, they get across the border. They're getting towards the t- titty twister. I think uh, at that point, Scott was driving or was Scott driving or was it uh, Jacob? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But, um, uh, and he tells him, he gives him the directions how to get to the place. And we are gonna, getting our first glimpse of the titty twister, which is just, it, it's everything that you expected. It's got a, you know, a 20 foot tall woman on it with her bazongas out, you know, flashing nipples. It's got, got it's got flames shooting out these like pyres on the, on the roof. There's bikers, there's truckers all, all around. There's fights going on outside. And then we get the second and most colorful uh, appearance by our good friend Cheech as Shea Pussy. He's, uh, what, yeah, uh, yeah. I'll let you take this one. <laughs> uh, you probably have it written down as far as uh, 
his dialogue. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Oh, I remember a lot of it. Uh, yeah. His, his, his dialogue as the, uh, kind of the MC of the, uh, of the titty twister is pretty, pretty fantastic. Just, you know, letting everybody know that they got plenty of different, uh, they got a variety, variety of, uh, of, uh, you know, say it on our show. It's okay. <laughs> well, you know, or I'll say, they, they, they got, they got a variety of pussy. That yes. is his sur- his surname, Shea Pussy, and he has you know, and he he lets them know as the MC that they indeed do have a penny pussy sale going on. Piece <laughs> of pussy at the regular price, you get another piece for only a penny, and the best. I think it might be the second best line because I do got the number one best line written down, but we'll get to it. But it's the second best line of the movie. He's like, if you can find cheaper pussy anywhere, fuck it. <laughs> and which is yeah definitely definitely it's, it's dirty it's crass it's not right but you just have to see it folks it's funny as shit and cheech is a master comedian and he's just great but yeah and and it i mean it, it sets the tone for what this place is right off the bat this is a wild like trucker bar uh you know right over the mexican border it's you know it's a wild place where there are no rules and it is very much the outlaw country, uh, uh, you know, that, that the rest of this movie is going to take place in. Yeah, We're, I kind of feel like this is the last stop, the last oasis before you get to El Rey. That's what it, it feels. Is. It yeah. is. And that's, and that's what he says. You know, he's you know, basically we're going to hang out here all night. We'll meet uh, you know, the other Cheech in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Cheech uh, Yes. And a little side note here uh, in the documentary, they show how they accidentally lit the front of this building on fire uh, and then had to this the scene that where Cheech is out there doing all the the introduction Mm -hmm. stuff. They had to postpone that scene by five days to resurface the front of the building because they had burned it all down. Oh, damn. I forgot all about that. (laughs) Because there's a big, you know, the big fire that's going on. you know, and at the end of the movie, there's the big explosion. Uh, that big fireball at the end uh, yeah. burned the whole. They they shot that. You know, you know, these movies are shot out of sequence. They shot that scene. Uh, it caught the whole front of the facade on fire. They had to hurry up, rush, and put it out. And then they shot this introduction scene later. Uh, if they shot, they, they had to postpone it. There was just a shoot it that day. They postponed it by five days so they could repaint the front. <laughs> Some somebody wasn't anticipating just how big those pyrotechnics were going to be. Yeah, and the 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 crew that built the facade because the the interior of the bar is at a different location, but the, the you know the front they built out in the middle of the desert here, and the uh, the facade took them five weeks to build it. Then they accidentally burned it down on the first day of shooting, and then they had to spend five more oh. days to re re repaint the front. The art department was not very happy. <laughs> No, I wouldn't be. I'd be pissed. <laughs> yeah, but you know, n- in the film industry, nothing really ever goes according to plan. So no, it never does. It's, you got to improvise. You got to be quick on your feet. <laughs> Otherwise, you're just gonna lay down in the fetal p- position and just tremble and cry. <laughs> right. We we don't get much a, a cheech a- after this. Um, at least for a little bit, and he's at least as Shea Pussy is concerned, uh, because he tries to stop Clooney and his crew from going in. Clooney knocks him out with a couple of punches. 
uh, you know, Quentin drop kicks him a couple times and just like, you know, he breaks his finger. They, they, they mess him up. And he never even gets to say what he was going to say. He just goes, not so fast, slick. And then instantly broken finger punched to the jaw. He fucks him up. And they go into this place and it's every bit as wild as you can imagine. There's bar fights everywhere. There's people being thrown through the air. There's naked women dancing everywhere. There's a mariachi band you know, playing off in, in one corner. There's a big stage. There's a big bar. And then we get our first glimpse of the man himself, Razor Charlie, uh, Danny Trejo, who is, I won't even list any movies he's been in because he's been in like 500. You know, he's been in all of them. He's in, he's yeah. in every movie. Uh, yeah, and he's, he's also in every From Dust Till Dawn movie because there's a bunch of not so great sequels, but he's in all of them. And he plays the yeah. bartender in all of them. Yes, and he uh, is even in the For Dust Till Dawn series at one point. Yeah, he plays the same character. I mean, I mean, kind of. I think they have this. I think they have varying names. They're all Charlies, but they're. I think they might be different Charlies. Yeah, if I remember but correctly. He's great. This is the, one of the last movies I might have seen him with short hair. He's had his long hair pretty much like ever since then. It's, it was. It was kind of odd. I'm like, oh, that's what Treo used to look like with like short hair. But yeah, uh, random random side note. About him and Robert Rodriguez, uh, I believe it was on the set of maybe El Mariachi uh, that he met Robert Rodriguez. And sounds right. Yeah. And uh, and they were filming that in Mexico. And Treo had a bunch of his family come to set to see him and turned out. A lot of his, or a couple of his family members were also related to Robert Rodriguez, and they found out they were distant cousins. <laughs> I remember reading that somewhere in an interview. I, I thought the the likelihood of that happening has got to be about like a million to one. Right. But. So they found out they were related, and I, you know, I don't know if that you know helped further their bond between them. But then you know he consistently was working. You know he's worked with Rodriguez for you know ever since. No, it's been like almost thirty years, and they've worked on. Got a multitude of films and machete films, Dustal Dawn movies, even Spy Kids. You know, uh, yeah, he's been in just pretty much everything Rodriguez has done since then, right. and deservingly so. He brings he br- just brings a special something to every role he plays. He's just you could have him just reading the phone book; he'd be entertaining. Yes, Treo Treo's a, he's a working actor, uh, and he that's what he is. He's a hard worker. That's what he does. He loves it. Plus, he that's is right. machete and machete yeah. don't list. Yeah. And that shit, that's like, that's some of my favorite. Uh, those are, those are some of my favorite movies, the machete movies. We'll have to do one of those next. Definitely. I'm still, I'm still hoping for a machete three machete in space. I, I keep hoping it'll happen. We're getting I, further and further away from the possibility, but you know, anything can happen. I don't know. I think, I think that there's a possibility of it still happening. It's yeah, but it is, it does seem like it might not, but, I, I, I have faith. I think it's going to happen. Yeah, just got to wait for, you know, those are both busy guys. And imagine their schedules are uh, pretty stacked. Yeah. And, you know, it's 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 a balancing act because those movies don't make a lot of money. So it's you got to do the you got to do the bigger movies that make the money. But I mean, you know, and Rodriguez, uh, you know, he just did um, uh, Alita Battle Angel and I it didn't make a lot of money. It was I don't know that it was necessarily a flop, but I don't think it was as successful as they had hoped, despite its critical success. Like people love it, but it just didn't bring in the money. 
So, yeah. but it is, but it is getting a sequel. It brought enough money to get a sequel. So, I mean, they're going to do it. But. It must have been semi-profitable, if not here, at least overseas or something. Right. Yeah, they, they don't make sequels unless those things make money. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> but uh, I, I, can't, I can't help but think, like, you know, like what Clooney says, he's like, this is my kind of place. You know, back in my, my day, 20 years ago, that would have been my kind of place. The Titty Twister would have been a bar that I wouldn't have minded going to. Now I just think to myself... <laughs> Oh, that just looks like a hospital visit or bail money. You know, it's going to be. Yeah. Needed. Yeah. That's a, it's it's a bit rough around the edges for me. <laughs> It'd be like a place I want to visit, but not want to stay. But, Definitely. you know, they they immediately meet resistance. The, the minute they come in, he goes up and, uh, you know, orders a drink. And Danny Trejo tells him, no, nah, you can't drink here. And Clooney is like offended. He's like, you mean I'm not good enough to drink here? Like at, at this fucking place, and he's like bikers and truckers only get out. Well, Jacob flashes his uh, his you know class three driver's license. Says, "Hey, I got a truck out there, and the, I'm a truck driver, and these are my friends." So Jacob kind of comes to the you know the rescue and diffuses the situation because there's a big guy that I can't even remember what the character's name was, but it was uh, just a big big muscle bound dude that was like their enforcer and it's like you're out and he's like nope he's like i ain't going anywhere and but he saves him he saves the situation and you know treo or charlie you know is like hey you know we'll get you a bottle of tequila get everything and they have the lovely line and he's like you see food here man and he's like oh the best best in mexico and he's like i kind of doubt that <laughs> I always felt like the line, I don't know if he was just kind of nodding and laughing and saying, yeah, the best in Mexico is in they had the best food in Mexico or they were the best food in Mexico. Yeah. Hey, you know what? That you might you might be right there. I never thought of it like that. Yeah, I didn't until I watched it this last time. And I'm like, maybe that's why he had that like shitting grin on his face. I'm like, that might be it. But then we get, you know, some shots going through the bars. Everybody settles in. They're getting their bottle of whiskey, and you know, and they're sitting down and drinking. And Seth is trying to get everybody at the table to drink. Jacob won't drink. But Kate, even though she's not 21, is like, she's like, I'll take a shot. And so is Scott. But you get the various characters that are there, and you get your first glimpse of Sex Machine, who's played by the incomparable Tom Savini, who gets um, finally gets some use out of the crotch gun from uh desperado that we never that we saw in the guitar case but never got to see in action <laughs> and like yeah he, he's got a little whip he's got a bull whip on his hip and he's got a crotch gun this gun that flips up out of a cod piece with two six shooter like almost like a gatling gun <laughs> but like i i uh i didn't know if you caught that the guy that he that he steals the beer from that sex machine steals the beer from with a with the uh, switchblade is actually Greg Nicotero of Walking Dead fame. Oh, it, it, okay. I did, I did not catch him in the scene, uh, but uh, I was. Uh, yeah, he does all the special effects for the whole movie. But yeah, uh, he's you know big with Walking Dead. He does Creep Show. He's done you know. He got to start with Tom Savini. You know, uh, Tom Savini trained him as a special effects man back in the eighties. They worked together on Days of, Day of the Dead for the very first one. The, not the first one, but I should say that the original one, because there's like three different remakes a day of the dead. Right. But it's this neat little interesting scene. And, and then, you know, you see another character named Frost, who's played by my boy. This is my guy right here. Fred the Hammer Williamson. Uh, Hell Up in Harlem, Black Caesar, original gangsters, 
you know, in just so many other cool exploitation films. And it, it's funny because he's sitting in this bar and he's a big imposing guy and there's a half naked girl dancing on his table. He seems a lot more interested in trying to stack dominoes than he is right. in looking at the naked girl dancing. And he looks almost annoyed, you know, but he's just such a badass character. Right. He's got a he, he comes off as a guy that he can have it whenever he wants it. And right now he doesn't want it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> He looks up and he's just kind of like doesn't say anything. He just looks up and look like, hey, like my cigar, which like she automatically does. Uh, this is a great scene. But then there's a little bit of back and forth between. Uh, I, I love this exchange between uh, Harvey and Clooney because Har- Harvey, you know, calls Clooney out and he's like, you know, why are you so agitated? He's like, oh, with that eight putting his hands on me. And he's like and he tells him straight up, you know, he realizes who he's dealing with. But Jacob, at least. You know, for a man who is nonviolent, he has balls. He tells him straight up, are you such a fucking idiot that you don't know when you've won? He's like, you know, the whole state is looking for you along with the FBI. He's like, you've won. Enjoy it. And it's I I think it's a neat little moment where Seth, instead of just arguing with him, he just says, have a drink with me. I insist. And it, it was like his way of saying, thank you for calming me down and, you know, having me calm my shit down. And yeah, it, it was that- again. The the dynamic between the two of them, like that's when you acknowledge that they both respect each other. Like yes. at that point is when they both earn, earned each other's respect. All right, let's have a drink that, you know, they've won. They're celebrating. Let's just yeah. we, we, we got a few short hours here before sunrise and we can all go home. It's just and uh, they just they don't even really know what's coming, though. And and it's coming in a matter of seconds. Um, Well, we get, you know, the the outside MC who was Shea Pussy Cheech. We get the inside MC who is Razor Charlie, Danny Trejo. He introduces Santanico Pandemonium, the the two words that will ring terror in any man's heart. But it's Salma Hayek dancing with a like a python or something around her. I don't know what kind of python. (laughs) The snake and, you know. Yeah, totally. You know, but uh, uh, she's, she hardly has any dialogue, but she commands the screen. Like she's just a beautiful, gorgeous woman, but it's her eyes, man. She's like, she is searching out in the audience for like, to me, satanical pandemonium is automatically looking for her next meal. She is, you know, we don't know at this point that there's quote unquote vampires in it. That big reveal is coming. She, I think she singles out uh, Richie's character because, you know, I, I always kind of thought it was a 50 50 because he was straight down the middle of the room. So she was, he was right in her line of vision. But then I also think she could smell the blood on him from his wounded hand. So I thought that was what yeah. dropped in was the scent of blood. Right. And you all like, I, I I can I can definitely buy into that uh, because I mean that's even you know when when things take the turn and you know she attacks is because his hand is covered in blood and she's like looking at it and you know she's just going right for it. But yeah. oh, something to keep in mind here is that Tarantino gets to totally live out his his foot fetish fantasy like through and through. <laughs> yeah, and let's talk about that. There is there's even a close up earlier on where he's looking at at Juliet Lewis and it's not like he's gazing at her. No, he's gazing at her toes. He's looking at her feet. And yeah. the, I mean, anybody that knows Tarantino's work, he's got a, he's got a bit of a foot fetish. 
Right. I was say most of his women characters or his female characters are introduced through their feet uh, in a yes. lot of his movies. And yeah, it's, he's he's definitely you know not hiding in the fact that he has a foot fetish. And then what does he do? He writes in that Salma Hayek has to stick her foot in my mouth and pour well, tequila down it. <laughs> and yeah, he pretty much sucks on the whole end of her foot uh, while that she's pouring tequila down it. It's just like you know, not not my cake, not not my piece of cake, you know, at, at all. You know, not not my thing. <laughs> I wouldn't complain no, about it not. Uh, as far as, you know, the acting and experience goes. It's pretty great. The uh, the uh, but in, as far as like if you were to dive into this as in the in the storytelling and in the in the setting, what did she just walk across and then stick her foot in your mouth? Like what? That place is not very clean. Let's just be real. <laughs> yeah, that's how you get like fucking hepatitis. Shit, yeah, you know? for <laughs> sure. <laughs> But uh, the you know she finishes her dance. Everybody is applauding, and it's a good times until Shay Pussy comes back in, gathers uh, Razor Charlie and the other goon, and they're making a beeline for the gecko's table. And you know Seth notices them them closing in, and he's like, "Hey, you know, get back on the clock." And and again, they're working together very well. You know, Quentin's got his back to him. He's like, "How many? Three. He's like, "Get back on the clock." And like you know, they're the way they communicate is very well. Uh, but it doesn't take lo- long before Razor Charlie pulls out a knife, pins Seth's ruined hand already to the table. So what does Seth do? You know, Seth pulls out a gun. He sh- he shoots uh, Shea Pussy. He shoots Razor Charlie. He shoots he shoots everybody pretty much. Yeah, right there. He empties his gun, but just before he can, um, Richie pulls the knife out of his hand stabs Razor Charlie seemingly to death with it and pins it back into the uh, table. And there's this slow, somber moment. Everything kind of turns into a dreamy slow motion. And you see Centenical Pandemonium standing there like she's in this ecstasy. And there's a really neat shot where they rack focus on the knife. is standing there and the puddle of blood is red, but the blood dripping off the knife is green. And you see Jacob sees it. But, you know, he sees it a moment too late. Well, a moment, you know, he sees it before anybody else. But there's then there's the big reveal and Centenico Pandemonium fucking uh, transforms into this hideous what, snake-like zombie. I mean, it is a very reptilian, not zombie, I'm sorry, uh, reptilian uh, vampire. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean. The vampire designs throughout the whole this whole end. I mean, they all change and they're all weird and they all have their own uniqueness to them. Have you seen the TV series? Yes, because the TV all three seasons. Because I've only seen the first season, and in the in the TV series, they do make them snakes. Yes. Yeah. So like, and the, so. everything is very, very always reverts back to like snakes and snake gods and stuff like that. They play upon that pretty heavily all three seasons. Yeah. Yeah. And and they, you know, they they also play into the fact that, you know, like this whole place was like calling Richie to it, at least within the first season, like calling Richie to it and all that. Uh, I, I, I enjoyed the the at least the first season. I haven't, I haven't finished this the show um, by any means, but I, I like the first two uh, seasons. The third season kind of fell apart a little bit, but it happens. Yeah. Just kind of like mean, the, the, the third move. The third movie kind of falls apart a little bit. Right. Uh, I don't think I've actually seen any of the movies. I've this is the only movie I've seen. I haven't seen any of the sequels. 
how this I, I kind of like from Dusk Till Dawn too. I kind of yeah. like it for what it is. It doesn't. It has a completely different feel. It feels more like uh, what a Sam Raimi directed from Dusk Till Dawn movie. It's a little goofier, but um, it's you know it, it it is what it is. It's a decent sequel, and I love Robert Patrick in it. But we maybe well, someday I'll get you to watch one of those, and we'll do one of those next. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I'm down. But, you know, then from what the next 10 minutes is just nothing but nonstop carnage. We have bodies flying in every direction. You got Frost is, you know, impaling vampires on a table. You got Kate is fighting Shea Pussy, who sees her because she is, quote unquote, apple pie pussy. (laughs) He goes after her. You got, uh, you know, Seth, not Seth, but Richie. Uh, gets taken out by Santanico Pandemonium pretty much right off the bat, like after the initial shooting happens. Right. She transforms. She leaps on his back, sinks her teeth into his neck, blood squirting every which way. Seth shoots her, shoots a couple other people, and that's when all the previous uh, vampires who have been shot just sit up, and that's when the attack happens. So everybody's attacking, uh, getting attacked. Se- Sex Machine is like... He gets to use his crotch gun once. You would have figured if he had something that intricate, he would use it more than <laughs> once. But I feel like the, uh, I know behind the scenes that the contraption didn't work really well and it kept falling apart. So they just used it for that one shot and then it never had him use it again because whoever was in charge of that prop, it just didn't work. It looked good. It just didn't work. That's funny. But yeah, so we get like nothing but like, Good solid five ten minutes of carnage. Everybody's dying. Vampires are dying left and right. All the the dancers turn into the vampires. The bartenders, the you know the security, everybody. Because the one uh, stripper, she takes the uh, or dancer takes and throws that big bar across the door and is like dinner is served. And then it's just it's pretty much it. And the effects really hold up to this day. But oh, I sure. did notice there's one effect that just made me cringe it 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 did not age well as when um sex machine kills razor charlie with the pool stick after he gets done kind of jumping around and doing some of his jackie chan type stuff yeah and when he melts and his two eyes turn into pool balls and roll into the corner pockets i was just like oh that that's 1996 cgi all the way oh for sure yeah and and you know and those are generally speaking the things that that don't hold up as much, you know, as, as CGI, you know, as technology changes and things, uh, tends to be the thing that, you know, always holds up the least, but, but I don't think it looks too bad. I think it's all right. No, that's like, like I said, that was like the one effect that I was just like, yeah, if they were ever going to like redo, redo this and, you know, 4k upscale or something that they could, they could stand to spend a little money and fix that one shot, (laughs) just (laughs) that one shot. There is a pretty comical moment after they, you know, they take everybody out. It's a huge scene. We could spend a whole show just talking about this one scene, but we don't have that kind of time. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, there's one point where they're all kind of standing around and the only ones that are left the Sex Machine, Frost, all three of the Fullers and uh, Seth Gecko. And I can't remember who it is, if it was uh, Sex Machine or Frost that says the line. <laughs> That says the line, like, aren't they all supposed to, like, just burn up or something? And then, like, just, like, immediately on cue, all the bodies just burst into flame. <laughs> right. It was just like, wah, wah. But uh, then we get another sad scene. And this is, and after this, it's really everything is pretty 
straightforward just action and horror but it's another sad scene where seth goes to to richie who's laying on the bottom and he has to <laughs> lean on the bottom of all this debris you know half a dead body laying on him a chair laying on top of him part of a table and he just tells him he's like you know he's like i'm sorry brother he's like I, you would have loved el ray you know it, it would have loved you you know and you would have found peace and he's like i'm sorry i love you buddy and then all of a sudden his eyes open up he's like oh i love you too seth and then he just morphs into a very Frankenstein looking kind of vampire. very Frankensteining looking. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Uh, I got, you got to love the uniqueness of all of the vampires in this. Yes. Every because, vampire is very different. It looks, looks and acts very different. Yeah. They all look very different, act very different. I mean, uh, according to Greg Nicotaro, they, he said that he really, you know, he was he was given creative freedom or whatever, but he didn't. He said that all he did was do whatever uh, Rodriguez wanted. He's like, I want a creature that looks like this, or I want a creature that looks like that. I want a creature that can do this. I want a creature whose stomach rips open and then he's got teeth and and you know it you know it's it eats you know decapitates somebody's head with its with its stomach. And uh, Nicotaro made all these things, and then on set, uh, Rodriguez was like, Did I say I wanted that? And he's like, yeah, yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rodriguez was just like a kid in a candy store. He's like, I want two yep. Snickers. I want a, a Twix. I want a Mars bar. And like, oh, this did is, I really ask for all that? This is uh, uh, um, Robert Rodriguez's first movie with uh, that was special effects heavy. It was his first movie using special effects at all outside of like, you know, like, um, like squibs. Yeah. So, so yeah, he was a kid in a candy shop. It's exactly what he was. He, he wanted all the gore, everything he could possibly think of. He wanted imagined and, uh, Nicotaro made it happen. Yeah. And, you know, and I, that's part of what I love about it. I know I've talked to a few people who don't like this movie and they say, that's the reason why they don't like it. There's no consistency with the vampires and, mm-hmm. you know, how to kill them, you know, how they react, how they turn, how quickly they turn. But, that's what I love about it. Uh, that's the thing that I actually do love about it is the fact that you don't know what to expect once you get past the first vampire and then the next one and then the next one that turns and the next one that turns. You don't know what to again. This is a movie you don't know what to expect every at every turn. It's so different. I love the looks of the vampires. I love the fact that they're dirty. You know, they're ugly and they're, they're monsters. They're They're not glittery. I love, I mean, they have that moment where they break it down, you know, they got the group and they're like, all right, what are we fa- facing here? And like Clooney's like, these are vampires, like, you know, are like, it, it's, they're vampires, let's move on. Like, we, how do we kill vampires? Yeah. Like, let's figure it out. And the, well, you know, Frost yeah, is I like, love I feel like I could just punch through one of them. Like their brains are mushy, like their, their, their bones are, are mushy. <laughs> He's like, you know, yeah, yeah, because it was Sex Machine, though, there that says it, because he's like, you no, know, you can good. push it right through them. If you hit one of them hard enough, you might take their head right off, because he right. says something, the fact he's like, the body is a rough and tough machine. He's like, but these guys are soft. And and they, they start, like, when they start doing and, uh, the tally of weapons and things that they have, and they're like, hey, he's like, we can just take two sticks, put them together and make a cross. And he's like, yeah, Peter Cushing does that all the time. I always <laughs> get a laugh out of that line. They they start realizing they're also in trouble because one there's bats outside trying to get in and there's hundreds of them this this swarms and swarms of bats so they kind of barricade the doors and the the windows even more to keep the bats out which because bats equal more vampires but now they're locked inside with all the victims that have died 
who are now returning for a second wave. It's like, this is what I wrote down in my notes here. I'm like, Massacre at the Titty Twister slash Second Massacre at the Titty Twister. And then we literally <laughs> have a third one later on. And this is where somebody does, they do the zombie trope. Sex Machine gets bit as they're trying to, you know, stake all these uh, vampires and put them out of their you know, misery for the final time. One of them bites him on, ar- on his arm. What does he do? He just puts his leather jacket on it and hides it. He's the guy right. in your, your zombie killing group who gets bit and doesn't tell anybody. You know, it's like, son of a bitch. <laughs> I know, but they they play it off a little, you know, comedically. So as he's changing, he's noticing it and trying to hide it. Like he's got like the long nails and the teeth and the. Yeah. <laughs> like well, that whole. Yeah, the, 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 when the vet fangs start to come out and he feels them and he puts his hand over his mouth, he's like, oh shit. And then his hand changes. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, you know, he's just a guy scared for his life. <laughs> But, but you know, he's you know you you get you get the idea that he's had a hard life, but he's had an all right life. I mean, his name is Sex Machine, and there is the comical part when they're starting to massacre all the the fallen zombies. I keep saying zombies, the fallen vampires. Uh, and you know, he saves Kate from a, a vampire that almost a legless vampire that almost kills her. He's like, you know, hey, he's like, it's like, how are you doing? He's like, what's your name? He's like, my name's Kate. What's yours? Oh, Sex Machine. Pleased to meet you. Just so nonchalantly, like my name is Sex Machine, and just look yeah. at it, Sabine. You just think to yourself, of course, your fucking name would be Sex Machine, right? Yeah, and then they go. I mean, and the the, the problem, you know, the big problem with him hiding the fact that he has been bitten now is that he's the one who who bites Jacob. Yeah, he bites Jacob, and he bites uh, Frost when he's I, gonna. Yeah, because he bites Frost, and then he bites Jacob next, and right in the middle when old. Fred the Hammer Williamson has given his his monologue, which is, again, another great piece of, of dialogue, which, again, within the course of, like, 30 seconds, you figure out who this character is. But unfortunately, he, you know, he's turned into a, a vampire and off not too long. So, boom, he changes. He bits, bites. I almost said Frost bites Sex Machine. No, Sex Machine bites Frost, then bites Jacob, beats everybody the fuck up i mean he knocks out everybody and then uh him and frost have a standoff and he's like you know come on sex machine i can take you on since you bit me and then he takes him throws him about 40 foot through the air which i love frank fred the hammer williamson but he wasn't already a vampire he supposedly didn't have superhuman strength but he's superman throws his yeah oh for sure through the window which of course lets all the bats in and i i love that shot as he turns around now Frost has like changed and his his jaws come like unhinged and he's like all vamped out and his arms are just you know he's just holding his arms out like like he's like now the god of the bats. I've I, always wanted to get that tattooed. I've never been much for like portrait tattoos or anything, but I've always wanted to get that that look of Frost like turning to look back towards the camera with those bats swirling around. Like I've always <laughs> wanted that tattooed. <laughs> On, on a side note, I almost got a big uh, portrait done uh, when I was very young, when I was 18, before I got six years before I got my uh, actually got my first tattoo, was going to get one of uh, Harvey Keitel as Mr. White. I had it all drawn up and it was <laughs> just him with the two guns firing. It was going to be a big portrait on my back. And I, was, I even had the line of dialogue was going to be underneath it. If some guy thinks he's Charles Bronson, take the butt of your gun and smash their nose. And thankfully, I I cooler heads prevailed and i did not get that when i was 18 right but because but still it would have been one hell of a conversation piece but oh yeah totally. uh, 
but now we're, we're now our group is separated. J Jacob is outside in the bar behind the bar. Jacob manages to find a pump shotgun and a baseball bat and makes the coolest fucking weapon. <laughs> right. <I've ever> <laughs> Because like the, the the pump action on the shotgun has a loop around it, so he just threads the, the bat there. So he has a cross, and when one of these vampires gets too close to him, he just shotguns them point blank. It's the coolest fucking weapon ever. I mean, like I, I love you know Phantasm's four barrel shotgun. I love Ash's chainsaw, but Jacob's baseball bat shotgun mixer is just <laughs> it's badass. You know, what I have me, to agree. That was more, yeah, that was more badass than Seth's uh, jackhammer steak thing at the end yeah the yeah, most I impractical mean, weapon ever <laughs> oh, yeah that, that that's like super impractical uh i think that the one of the more practical ones is the just the holy water like water balloons <laughs> yeah the holy water water balloons and the super soakers filled with holy water yeah. i put one of those on each hit yeah. yeah but uh jacob manages to fight off the dozens and dozens of vampires i mean it's it, the place is now filled and i don't know if you feel the same way but i really thought that the this wave of vampires, the the wave of bats, I'll just call them bat vampires. They look like vampire orcs, like from Lord of the Rings. They look very definitely, old. definitely. Yeah. This this definitely has that that feel for it. I mean, like you know, like the army of darkness, almost kind of uh, like like the kind of zombie esque things that you get in that uh, or deadites, I guess. Maybe they're deadites, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it definitely some, has some sort. Of, they're the undead, right? Yeah. Uh, but they definitely have a more of a consistency in the way they look versus uh, all the things they fought previously. They, they kind of go for what do you call it? Uh, the let, let's load them up kind of scene. They, they, you know, they they look around. Jacob says, "Hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to turn within the hour, so we need to act fast. You know, or otherwise they're going to when they come through that door, we got to hit them with everything we got." And he looks around, and there's just cases and crates of you know, stuff everywhere. And they deciphered that, you know, they've been eating off these people for, you know, probably years, if not decades. And this is the loads that they've stolen off the trucks. So they just, you know, they go through everything for weapons. So that's when they find super soakers, they bless the water, you know, since, you know, he, he is a, there's a line that we missed out on uh, that we already went past where Seth tries to get Jacob a little fired up. And he's like, are you a faithless preacher or a mean motherfucking servant of God? And then, oh, right, right, right. Yeah, that's, that's like Harp, the best. That might be one of the best lines in the movie. Well, the, this, hit, uh, you know, uh, Jacob's rebuttal to that is I'm a mean mm, mm, servant of God. It's just like, <laughs> oh, man, we need you to be a little more tougher than that, man. <laughs> We're fighting the undead here. We need you a little bit more behind us. <laughs> but they get their weapons. They, they you know, they, uh, they find a crossbow. Kate uses that. You know, Scott's got his water balloons filled with holy water. You know, uh, Jacob's got his gun and <laughs> Clooney's got a jackhammer that he fits with a big stake at the end of it, which you would it would be a practical weapon if you were fighting one vampire Impractical right. fighting dozens. But yeah, it still looks cool, I'm, you know, and it's pretty badass. And way yeah, he uses it, you, you go in for cinematics here. It looks cool as fuck. And that's that's, you know, all that matters. <laughs> This is kind of like my favorite movie weapon of all time is the four barrel shotgun from Phantasm, but pretty impractical of welding and strapping together two double barrel shotguns to fire at the same time. I don't know many people that could fire four 12 gauge rounds at once and not be blown back on their ass, right. you know, but, but Reggie's that badass. So, you know, that's where you go. You, you got to go with it. Uh, 
But now, you know, once the bats, the bat vampires are kind of at death's door, this is the, their last stand. This is like the, the, the bloodbath at the end of the wild bunch, you know, they're facing insurmountable odds. Uh, you know, the, the, <clears throat> I call them this wave of the ugly vampires. And I, I love the fact that they're all so different and how they react to damage if inflicted upon them are different because when they, once they storm the out, you know, they storm out the back room, they go down that little corridor and they, they're face to face. And it's kind of like that, you know, standoff moment before you know, who's going to, who's going to strike first. Right. And then they, they just go at it. And it's another big, just a fucking massacre bodies flying everywhere. People, you know, vampires dying left and right. And then we get Seth, Mas- uh, Seth machine, <laughs> we get sex machine coming back for a one-on-one with uh, George Clooney, which I thought was a great fight, but he uses his own method against him. Like uh, sex machine has said, if you hit one hard enough, you'll take your head right off. Right. So he does. And he uses, uh, you know, sex machines, bullwhip, pop his head right off and you think that's the end of them but no a rat monster i, I don't know i mean what did you think <laughs> that when you first saw that when all of a sudden you know sex machines laying there headless and the rat monster just kind of splits his body apart pokes his head out and now we got like our big kind of john carpenter's the thing moment where the rat monster comes out right. of sex machine I- that's the uh, out of out of all the weird things in this movie i've always felt like that one was the the weirdest one like why this why 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 does he turn into a big rat monster but at the same time i don't think i care enough to really like you know analyze it we're watching a monster movie at this point and they're just yeah it's a creature feature it's exactly like how many different types of creatures and monsters can we put into this apparently if you take a zombie's head off or zombie, a vampire's head off, the remaining uh, corpse turns into a big rat monster. So, note yeah. to self, don't do yeah, that. Yeah, just keep that, keep that in mind. If you're fighting vampires, don't decapitate them because they will turn into a big uh, eight-foot-tall rat monster. Right. It's kind of like the scene in Demons, you know, where they, they go to kill the one demon and its back splits open. I don't know if you've ever seen Demons from 85. And another demon just comes out of its back. Another <laughs> uglier, like, it's just like, why, why, why are you the only one that does that? Why are you the only one that does it? But it, it's a, it's another movie that's a lot like from Dust Till Dawn, uh, but it's people locked in a movie theater with demons as opposed to being locked into a bar with vampires. So I, I, I got a kind of demons vibe from that. But if you haven't seen that, I highly recommend it. Uh, I'll have to check it out. But I've seen the poster. <laughs> oh, it's. It's I am big on foreign horror. It is my favorite foreign horror movie. I literally have a demon's bobblehead sitting on my desk. So nice. uh, my yeah. But anyway, you know, not about talking about demons. Sorry, sorry, talking about dusted on. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we get the the next uh, wave of of massac- massacres and uh, get Jacob's faces off against uh, not Sex Machine but Frost. And he just rams his shotgun through his stomach and uses him as a human shield to shotgun all the other zombies. And this is the part, another thing that just didn't make sense, but I didn't give a shit because it was so badass. He's just cocking the shotgun from inside right. chest cavity and, and, and just using him as a human shield to blast these, you know, these zombies. Got to keep saying that these vampires. Hell, they might be kind of zombified. You never know. They're the undead, you know. They're the undead. 
but uh, when he pulls the shotgun out and he looks at it, it's all dripping with goo and he's just going to hit him in the head, Frost just kind of has like a breakdown and screams and just like disintegrates. Right. It, again, another thing that doesn't make sense, but it's a great effect and it's, it's a great scene because then that's the moment where, you know, uh, where Jacob turns. And I like right. how they do it. He's standing there getting ready to just start swinging the shotgun like a club and the vampires surround him. And then all of a sudden they just start to slowly walk away. And Scott, his son, notices this. And he's just kind of like, Dad. And when he turns around, you just, you know, it's coming, but it's such a great right. The makeup is so good. Jacob is now turned. And he, you know, there was a scene before they went out and stormed the rest of the bar. He made his son and his daughter promise him and made him hey you know if you see me about to turn you think anything you know don't hesitate and they yep. swear like we swear in jesus christ's name we won't hesitate and what does scott do he, he hesitates <laughs> and what yeah. does it cost him tony <laughs> uh cost him his life <laughs> he gets he gets bit in the neck uh but you know he manages to he does manage to kill his father uh, by slamming his head with a with one of these condoms full of holy water, <laughs> and great, uh, great usage uh, of, of uh, prophylactics right there. Yeah, definitely. And then you know shoots him in the head, but um, you know right before getting taken out by a whole lot of zombies, it was a pretty sad moment. Uh, you know, you had like four or five zombies eating on eating on Scott while he's begging for his sister to. Kill him. Yeah, yeah. She, and he's just like, "Kill me, Kate." And it was really the one scene where he was convincing as an actor because I felt like uh, the actor that played uh, Scott was just not very good. But like the scene where he's screaming, where they're eating on him, and he's begging to be killed, I found it very believable and yeah. very genuine. And like, it, you know, it was like kind of really the last scene where they really pluck at your heartstrings because there's not much of the family left. Because with this when Kate, you know, shoots and kills the the vampires that are eating on him and shoots and kills her uh, brother before he can turn, you know, that's it. Uh, she's the last one left. So really, Seth's lost his family. Uh, Juliette Lewis, you know, uh, Kate has lost hers. And so they're the, the both the two last, you know, the last one standing. And they're, you know, he, he ain't got nothing left. His jackhammer, you know, Seth ain't got nothing left. The jackhammer is busted. He's just got this little two foot long stake. She's got a gun with a couple of bullets in it, but now the sun is starting to come up and it's kind of like, you know, they've done in stuff like a uh, horror of Dracula or even fright night, you know, where light is starting to come in through the holes in the walls and stuff. And that's when he tells you, he's like, you know, she's like, do I save the last bullet for us? And he's like, no, he's like, use it on the next fuck that tries to bite you. But then when the light starts coming through, they start shooting holes in all the windows, which is kind of creating we want to call it like a barrier between them and the, you know, in, in impeding horde of uh, vampires. Right. Yeah. But, you get this nice, it's, it's, it's a cool visual. You get this nice great effect, you know, of all the, all the light coming through uh, and, and them fighting around like around the light, trying to stay within it. Like, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's, it's a, it's a neat visual. And then they are saved by guess who parents mm -hmm. by Cheech number three, Knocking on the outside door, and hey, I'm looking for my friend Seth. And he's just like, Carlos, you know, break down the door. So he's got a couple Goombas with him. They they shotgun the door to smithereens. The doors fly open. All the vampires start bursting in the flames just in the nick of time. Because I mean, they're like right there getting ready to feast on Kate and Seth. 
Kate and Seth run out. Everybody starts running yeah. from the building, and then everything just ex- all the vampires on fire at once just causes the building to explode. Yeah, and that explosion is what set the whole building on fire in real life. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that's when they had to repaint it for, and redress it for five days. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't. I got to rewatch that uh, full tilt boogie. I've not seen that probably since it came out. I watched that once back in the nineties. Yeah, it, uh, it. I just watched it like right before the podcast, and uh, it's 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 very much a nineties documentary. It's more it's more about the the drama on set, and it's it's funny because it's it follows like a lot of the the grips and the assistants and things like that. It's it's more about the the crew than it is about like the making of the movie. And like who's who's got a romantic who who's sleeping with who on set and things like that uh, get brought up a lot and it's it's pretty funny and uh, <laughs> uh, Tarantino goes on like a, a not a rant but like a, a little thing about how Bruce Willis once told him on the set of uh, Pulp Fiction that that he could get any woman that he wants <laughs> and he's like, he's like <laughs> Bruce Willis said that so I believe it <laughs> which at the time probably was true who knows. Right. <laughs> but then this is where we get the best line that to me, this is the numero uno line of the movie. After the building's blown up, Seth is there confronting Carlos and he's like, hey, man, what's going on? And then like and George Clooney just punches Carlos right in the face, almost gets shot by Carlos's henchman. But Carlos is like, what's the matter with you? He's like, why did you choose this place? Why of all the godforsaken places in you know, Mexico, did you choose this? And he's like, well, it's open dust till dawn. And didn't you want to say you want to wait, you know, to the mor- morning, you know, meet in the morning. And then that's why we're here. So what's going on? And he's like, you know, my, my, my brother is dead. You know, this girl's whole family is dead, you know, and it's all your fault. And he's like, what were they psychos? He's like, psychos. And he's like, psychos do not explode when sunlight hits a man. I don't care how fucking crazy they are. That is that's my favorite why- line. <laughs> and, and, and yeah my favorite line too and, and like carlos just kind of shrugs and just like how can i make it up to you so they barter back and forth and he's like you know so he's bartering with what little money you know he's got left so they make the exchange he gives carlos his cut he gives kate a cut of his own money you know uh, you know i don't know how many thousands but it was a stack of cash and she you know even asks him you know can i go with you can i go with you where you're going and he's like you know what el rey is he's like it's not a place for somebody like you he's like go home but like the poor girl's got nothing she's got a burned out old rv and now that she's got to somehow try to like limp back across the american uh mexican border you know what has she got to go back to she's got n- nothing but she's got an rv and a stack of cash and then that's pretty much the end of our movie except for that last shot and what'd you think of that last shot? I'll let you take this one, Tony, because I, I love it. It just lets you know how big the picture really is. Right. You get that the the shot of of the titty twister and like the the kind of like you know, I guess helicopter shot of uh the the back side of it where we get to see that it's like a Mayan temple that is like yeah. how many stories into the ground. Oh, uh, dozens. Yeah. And so you know, this has been going on for ever, you know, yeah. you know, hundreds, and, if not thousands of years. Yeah. And you just get all those semi trucks, just tons and tons of semi trucks, just just junkyard, just boneyard full of just rubble and trucks and a giant Mayan temple. That's like a big pyramid. It's great. 
Yeah, it just lets you know just how big the picture is, even though it's kind of it seems like it's all one isolated incident. That's why I, I, I love where the series took it, even though it kind of fell apart in the TV series towards the, the third season. It just got a little it got a little too crazy, but right. it was. It was still so good. It was such a good show. But uh, that brings us to the end of our movie and we get some more, uh, you know, bluesy, twangy kind of music, some ZZ Top type stuff. And and we're cutting out at the end credits. So um, I think you know how things go here. Uh, we usually do a, a final review and a rating on a scale from one to ten. And I usually give the guests an uh, opportunity to go first. So what's your final thoughts and, and review on a scale from one to ten? Um, my final thoughts are uh, that I don't know. I, this movie is just one of those movies that's always stuck with me since I was a kid. Um, I don't know. I don't know what my crazy appeal to it really is. Uh, and I always put it into like, like out of all the movies that exist in the world, like I always put it in like, my, it's always in my top five favorite movies always. And it's because it's so much fun. It's, it has, I don't know. It has a lot of emotion to it. I think it's, it, and it's a crime drama, which is my favorite genre. And so it's crime that has this horror twist. Uh, George Clooney and uh, or not George Clooney, but Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez are two of my favorite directors. So you got Tarantino's storytelling in there with Rodriguez directing. Um, and you also have uh, this element to the story that that they both uh, compared to Stephen King's writing, which is, you know, in most Stephen King's books, you get to really spend a lot of time with your characters before the horror starts to happen so that when the horror does happen and they can put these characters through hell, you really feel for the characters when it's happening. I don't know that in From Dust Till Dawn that you really feel for the characters when shit hits the fan uh, as much as I think that they want you to like when that when, but, but for, for the bigger characters, I think maybe you do like when, when Jacob dies, I think it is like that whole scene is, is it is sad, but the whole scene is so chaotic and so crazy that I don't know that it lets it breathe long enough for you to really feel sad. Uh, but ultimately as far as this movie goes, I mean, I probably, even though it is my top five or top five favorite movies, I'd still probably rate it probably like within like a seven. That's probably what I'd give it. I think. Uh seven out of ten that's pretty fair it's pretty fair you're coming it's in got a lot of flaws it's got a lot of flaws <laughs> oh yeah for as much as i love it it does have some flaws some of the you know i'm trying to think of a way to describe it. i mean uh you pretty much have hit every nail on the head uh the the story is all quentin the action and the directing is all rodriguez and rodriguez and quentin are two of my favorite directors of all time too i think it plays a lot like uh well, like Scott shirt, like assault on precinct 13 is, you know, about an insurmountable force hitting this, you know, place and just wave after wave. Uh, it's, it's an, it's amazing. The, the character development, you know, I mean the, or the character dynamics between the two, you know, families as they butt heads, you know, getting into Richie's head and the, and his psychosis and how, you know, Seth deals with him. It's it's a it's a sad story of somebody who's already a little bit unhinged dealing with you know a family member that he clearly loves more than life itself, but he can't control him. It's just, uh, but it, you know, it does have a little bit of flaws. Some of the CG doesn't work quite as well anymore. Some of the, you know, some of the editing choices are just a little weird and a little abrupt. But I, I love this movie. It's the perfect example of grindhouse and exploitation films done in the 90s. Like I said it towards the beginning of the show, it 
there weren't a whole lot of movies that had that kind of feel of a grindhouse film made in the 90s. But, I, you know, for Quentin and, and uh, Robert going on to direct the Grindhouse double feature film, you know, Planet Terror and Death Proof, I felt like this movie was more Grindhouse than even that. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, not that those movies weren't Grindhouse feeling, you know, weren't, didn't emulate that that type of thing. But I, I just felt like From Dust Till Dawn was the, the way grind out the Grindhouse movie should have been. <laughs> Yeah, but, definitely. I mean, with with the grind, like the the two grindhouse movies that they put together, you know, for that release, they were. I mean, those are grindhouse movies in the sense of those are what grindhouse movies are now. Mm-hmm. I think they basically created the modern grindhouse with those movies, where From Dust Till Dawn pays more homage to what grindhouse was. Perfect, perfect way of putting it. But um, I'm coming in just you know, I, I can't, it's one of my favorites as well. I can't coming really really high on it i'm coming slightly higher than you i'm gonna give it an eight out of ten because it it was just so nostalgic i remember seeing it at the drive-in with my friends you know it was came out the year after i graduated high school it's one of the kind of movies you know that came out around the time clerks and reservoir dogs and you know desperado and that kind of era of a couple years of movies that really formulated what i wanted to do and who i wanted to be as a filmmaker so it's but yeah, it, it's it's a little bit imperfect, but that's you know a grindhouse film. That sh- grindhouse films shouldn't be perfect, right? And I think my my only inconsistency, my only thing with it is, I think what most people have complaints about, which is the inconsistencies with the actual creatures and the rules behind it and all that stuff. But I mean, I can throw that all out the window and just enjoy it for the fun that it is. But right. but that but those storytelling beats, the aspect of it is kind of the thing that it just raises a lot of questions in those in the final moments. Like, how long does it actually take you to turn? What's with the giant rat creature? What's with like the how some of them are like snake looking, but some of them are bat looking? Like, what, like you know, what are the rules here? Where do these things come from? But yeah. hey, you know, it's also just like a super ancient species of vampires. So yeah, they've been evolving over centuries. Yeah, maybe we don't know how they infect people. Maybe we just don't know. And it's just, yeah, there might be the inconsistencies, especially in, like, how the vampires look, how they react to certain damage, because some of them, you know, instantly go up in flames and are easily killed, and some are a little tougher, you know, and like, why is that? Well, you don't need to ask why. You're never going to get any answers. Just turn your brain off, have some popcorn, maybe drink a beer, and just have fun with it. It's a good beer and popcorn kind of movie. For sure. All right. Well, I think we've covered about everything we can possibly cover. <laughs> we've actually talked about the movie probably longer than the actual length of the movie, which just shows <laughs> just how, how much we love this flick. We both have a, an affinity for uh, crime dramas and horror movies. So I think this was a perfect movie for the two of us to do together. Uh, maybe someday, you know, we can uh, talk about this, the sequels whenever you get a chance to watch them. <laughs> like I said, I don't know that like, I can highly recommend this first movie to anybody that loves a good crime drama or a horror movie, but I don't know that I can recommend the second or third one as much as I like the second one. Eh, I don't like the third <laughs> one. Right. Really at all. But you know, but the series is something to behold. Uh, I really thought the series was done very well. It didn't look cheap. It didn't feel cheap. Most of the time when they do a, a TV series of a, of a movie of this ilk, the, it just feels cheap, but it doesn't. It feels very good. No, I was actually very surprised with it. I, cause I, I watched the first season when it came out and I was very surprised at how much I enjoyed it. And, 
I uh, was just very surprised at the production value of it all because, yeah, uh, that's what I was thinking going into it. But, all, you know, I, I thought the same. They, they've been pretty good with things like that, like with the Fargo TV series. Like, I really enjoyed that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, th- they figured out a way, like a formula here, I feel like, to, to take movies and break them down into a show and make it work now. Well, not all the time. Not all, yeah, not all the time, but the Minority Report show was not 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 too great. <laughs> never never saw that. Never it didn't didn't look didn't look too good to me. No, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> all righty. Well, I won't take up any more of your time, brother. I want to uh, thank you for joining me on on your first episode of Grindhouse Pizzeria. It was a pleasure having you on. I, I enjoyed getting to sit and uh, you know put our brains together on a movie like this. It's been fun. Yeah, I, I I mean, thanks for having me. I, I I thoroughly enjoyed just, you know, talking about this movie for the last couple hours. This is what I like to do. I like to sit around and bullshit about movies. So this yeah, gives me a perfect platform to do it and not feel like I'm wasting time with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, you, when you feel like you're, you're having that conversation with like minded people and you're not having to beat a point home, you, you know, <laughs> like right. I don't have to convince you that this movie is great. Like it's like that moment in Step Brothers. Did we just become best friends? <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, thank you once again, Tony. Uh, I appreciate you coming on my silly little show and and talking about these crazy movies. And uh, folks, you have been listening to Grindhouse Pizzeria on the Cinema Degeneration Network. I have been your host, Cameron Scott. This has been my co-host, Tony Walters. And we thank you very much for listening. What the fuck was going on in there? What's the matter with you? Are you crazy? Why? Out of all of the godforsaken shitholes in Mexico, do we have to meet here? One place is just as good as another. You've never been here before. No. I drove by it a couple times. It's a rowdy place. It's on the middle of nowhere. There'll be no cops. And it's open from dusk till dawn. Hey, didn't you say you want to meet in the morning? Here we are. Well, since you just picked this place out of the hat, my brother is dead. That girl's entire fucking family is dead. Psychos? They look like psychos? Is that what they look like? They were vampires. Psychos do not explode when sunlight hits them. I don't give a fuck how crazy they are.